Good morning. This morning's scripture text comes from Genesis chapter 27. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it's on page 21. That's Genesis chapter 27. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. So starting in verse 1. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them delicious food, from them delicious food for your father, as he, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them, and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give of you dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, 
and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be rift of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one, like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is the word of the Lord. If your Bibles have accidentally closed on your laps, I'll invite you to open them up again to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27 and... This morning we've arrived at a story that is a Sunday school classic. It, it ranks right up there with Jonah and the whale and Daniel in the lion's den in popularity among uh, church kids and their Sunday school teachers. Not only is the story of Jacob and Esau and the battle for the blessing a super interesting one to tell, but it's also very conducive for a craft project to round out the Sunday school hour. So the kids get to glue cotton balls 
to the arms and the face of a Jacob figure, and it's all very fun and exciting. Except that it's horrible. It's like those uh, traditional lullabies that you sing to your newborn baby as you rock him to sleep in his cradle. rock a baby on the treetop. And it's all very sweet and precious. But then you find yourself singing about the wind blowing and the bough breaking and the cradle crashing down to the ground with the baby in it. And it dawns on you that this is actually a terrible song. I'm a bit nostalgic, so I like the idea of introducing my two boys to the songs and the TV shows and the movies that I enjoyed as a kid. But I found that having kids of your own makes you look at that old stuff with quite a bit more scrutiny. My favorite movie when I was a kid was Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. And uh, I must have watched that movie 20 times. But when I watched it again recently with a a view to introduce it to my kids, I realized, I think for the first time, that the movie is atrocious. Pee Wee Herman is a terrible human being, both in the movie and in real life. Even before it was canceled on TBS, um, the Dukes of Hazzard had to be canceled in my family. Not because of the Dixie flag, mind you, but because of Daisy. I guess when I, was, when I was a kid, I had just kind of glossed over the fact that she's their cousin. Well, at least the boys will be able to enjoy the classic family show that is the Cosby show. Nope. We had to shut that one off after season three. So your, your desire to give your kids a taste for 90s dance music may start out innocently enough, but trust me, before long, you're going to be diving for the mute button. You know, things are typically much worse than, than we remember them to be, and Genesis 27 is a prime example of that. When you read this story later in life and more carefully, you realize that everything in it is horrible. There's more dysfunction in this one chapter than in an episode of the Jerry Springer Show, which incidentally is another piece of 90s culture not to introduce to your children. In that show and in in this chapter, it's impossible to identify any heroes. Right? You know, stories typically have good guys and bad guys. But in the case of Rebecca and Jacob versus Isaac and Esau, they're all villains, every single one of them. To use the language that is in keeping with the theme of Genesis, they are all faithless at this critical juncture. Last week in chapter 26, we had the privilege of seeing how God's promises were seamlessly handed down to Isaac after the death of Father Abraham. And sure, there was a little blip there where Isaac's faith gave way to fear and he, he pulled his, old, his dad's old trick in Gerar. You know, it's actually the Dukes of Hazard trick of making people really confused as to whether this pretty girl is your love interest or your relative. So there's a little blip there, but for the most part, 
I think we could say in fairness that Isaac's life was, generally speaking, the life of faith. And we saw that it was characterized by belief in God's promises, by prosperity, by peacemaking, by prayer and praise. As we come to Genesis chapter 7, 27, and as the promises of God are once again ready to be handed down from Isaac to the next generation, this is the kind of the next stage in salvation history, I think it's fair to say that we're prepared for the best after chapter 26. We've seen it done properly. We've seen it done faithfully. But what we actually encounter here in this chapter is a faithless fumbling when Isaac attempts to hand off the baton of blessing. It's just a disaster. And we see a dizzying display of faithlessness in this chapter. There's much for us to to recognize here for the purpose of avoiding. Um, But we also get to see something very glorious in this chapter. Something very, very encouraging. I trust it will be for you. Technically, I was wrong when I said that there there was no good guy in the story. There is. There's a good God who is lurking behind all of these events. And this good God is faithfully accomplishing all of his good purposes. And he's doing so in spite of the ham-handedness of all of the human beings involved. I hope to be able to show you that. hope to show you all of that stuff as we work our way through this, this lengthy chapter. And I want you to see three main things. From this chapter, I want to show you the conduct of faithlessness, the conduct of faithlessness, secondly, the consolation in faithlessness, and finally, the consequences of faithlessness. The conduct, the consolation, and the consequences. If you're the note taking type, you can jot, fill in some notes under those headings. Uh, we'll spend the bulk of our time on the first point. And the good news will be under that second point, right there in the middle, dead center of the bullseye. So that's where we're going. But first I want you to consider the conduct of faithlessness. Now by faithlessness, I mean walking by sight and not by faith. I mean doubting the promises of God. I'm talking about disbelieving that he has both the ability and the desire to deliver on what he has said that he is going to do. Of course, faithlessness is something that happens first in your mind, in your heart, but it never stays there. It's not content to just be inside of you. You know how this works. The Bible speaks of this often, that the heart overflows. That which is in the heart overflows into words and conduct and all the rest. Conduct, then becomes the the fruit by which we can identify the tree. We can can figure out what's in our heart by the the conduct that comes from it. So I think it'll be helpful for us to see some of the conduct that is on display by the various characters in this chapter. And we do so um, so that by the Spirit's uh, help, we can recognize some of this stuff 
when it shows up in our lives and in our conduct. And quite honestly, we could spend all of our time digging through the depths of depravity that are on display here, but we'll have to just be satisfied to point out three Ds, three Ds in terms of the conduct of faithlessness. First, there's dimness. Dimness. Verse 1 tells us that when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so that he could not see. I know a little bit about what this is like because it happened to my wife this week. Uh, Not because she's old. Don't let that get back to her. But because she had eye surgery. And until her eye heals, which it's doing very nicely, thank you for asking, until it fully heals, though, her, everything for her is dim and blurry. She sees men as trees walking, to use the biblical terminology. And this is how it was for Isaac in his old age. This is how it is for many people. This is a very common problem. Can I get an amen, Norma? <laughs> but it's hard not to understand this symbolically as well. In his old age, Isaac is experiencing a real spiritual dimness. He's not perceiving things with spiritual acuity. He's not seeing things sharply with the eyes of faith. And this is a hazard for Christians, even for old Christians, people that have been in the faith for a long time. Uh, One of my favorite Christian music artists is Robin Mark. And he has a song about this phenomenon, which goes in part like this. Men of a certain age are weary. Everything rolls along. Nothing has changed for 30 years now. It's still the same old song. Apathy for your anger. Compromise replaced your rage. Things you once stood for, now you stay seated. Men of a certain age. It's a, it's a hazard in the Christian life to just grow careless and calloused and eventually dim, spiritually speaking. Now what happens is when dimness sets in, you go from spiritual sensitivity to sensuality. Sensuality. And that word typically has sexual connotations, but it doesn't need to. Really, it just means to be driven by your senses, your touch, your smell, your taste, your hearing, your sight. And I don't know if you noticed, but in the narrative, these five senses figure heavily, prominently, all throughout. And they are very problematic. This is, this is what gets people into trouble, especially Isaac. The point is that instead of being spiritually sensitive, Isaac is now being led by his senses. Or as the the great Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner says, quote, unfitness for office shows in every act of this sightless man, rejecting the evidence of his ears for that of his hands, following the promptings of his palate, and seeking inspiration through, of all things, his nose. Isaac is just driven by his senses. And if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll maybe recognize that this is what characterized the first sin as well. It occurred when Eve's senses took over. Quote, 
when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. That's what plunged us into this mess in the first place is sensuality, reliance on senses rather than on spiritual perception, rather than the word of God. Right from the very beginning, right down to the present day, this is how we operate in our dimness. Spiritual sensitivity gives way to sensuality and we're driven by our feelings and by our appetites. We make decisions based on what feels good or what sounds good to you, what feels right, what looks good. But that is faithless conduct. And because our senses are so unreliable, it always leads us to devastation. Always. So I really uh, resonate with that old hymn, Spirit of God, Descend Upon My Heart. I quote this from time to time. Uh, It's it's really my prayer. Because it puts its finger on my biggest need in the Christian life. And that is, what I don't need is some miraculous heavenly, ecstatic experience to heighten my spiritual sensitivity. That's not what I should pray for. Verse 2 goes like this. I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul away. That's what I need, and I suspect... That's what you need as well. A second component of faithless conduct is deception. I suppose I don't have to labor this point too too much because really it's the theme of the whole chapter. You can see deceit at every turn from every character. First, you see it from Isaac. He's not some innocent, old, blind codger. He knows the oracle of the Lord. He knows God's predetermined plan that the older shall serve the younger. Nevertheless, you can see that Isaac is forging ahead with a plan to bless his older son, despite what the Lord has said and determined. He, he wants to push ahead with this secret plan to bless his favorite son, his son the hunter, his son the chef. And so to pull this off, he is going to have to be very deceptive. This, this blessing, which um, I know it comes across as strange to us in our time and culture, but think of it like his last will and testament. But it's even more stronger than that. It's, it's an oath. It's a, it's a vow. It's a, it's a declaration that the Lord honors and blesses. So that's what's going on. Uh, This is what he is offering. He's passing on the blessing of the Lord, and he's planning to do it to his favorite son, his older son. This type of thing is supposed to be done in the presence of, of witnesses, at least two or three. But Isaac wants to confer his blessing on Isaac in secret, in a private ceremony. It's all very underhanded. And Esau, for his part, he knows the deal that he made with his brother. 
earlier when he traded in his birthright for that delicious pot of red stew. So for Isaac to go along with his father's plan means that he's ready and willing and even eager to renege on the deal that he's made with his brother. He's not a man of his word. He's deceitful at this point. But Rebecca, she's listening at the door. And right away she concocts a plan to rescue the blessing. The, the blessing, it appears, is in jeopardy. And as you know, Rebecca heard the same oracle from God. In fact, she heard it directly from the Lord that the older would serve the younger. Now, if Rebecca's operating in faith, she would go to the Lord when the blessing appeared to be in jeopardy. After all, it's, it's, if you can say this reverently, it's the Lord's problem. This is his blessing. But no, in faithlessness, Rebecca takes matters into her own hands. And her plan requires heavy deception from beginning to end. And then J- Jacob, of course, he has to be in on the deception if it's going to be pulled off. So when his mom tells him the plan, really commands him to carry out this plan, his only objection has to do with the practicality of carrying it out. He doesn't raise a concern about the morality of the thing, only the practicality. So in verse 11, Jacob asks, how, can they, how are they ever going to pull this off? Because he and his brother are so different, as we saw last week, in so many ways. They're noticeably different. They're palpably different. You know, Jacob was a, a, a smooth, soy boy type, and Esau was a rough, Harry Brian Jacobs type. And and if Isaac would ever like reach out and touch him, the plan is going to fail big time and worse in his anger, Jacob imagines that Isaac would deliver a curse upon him rather than a blessing. But Rebecca's got a plan for that too. She's got a deception for that too. So she pasted cotton balls actually wool balls on Jacob's hands and his arms and his neck and probably a little tuft here in the chest coming out of his robe. And then she put him in Esau's clothes, which had that distinctive outdoorsy smell. Deception at every point. The deception continues. She made food that mimicked Esau's signature dish, the type of food that she knew Isaac just loved. And notice that word love there. When Isaac says, it's food that I love, and it's repeated, food that he loves, take note that that is an inordinate kind of love. That's not just uh, something that you like, desire. That, that's a deep passion. Again, we see that Isaac is off the rails here. He's, he's loving something other than his God with an inordinate love. Anyway, uh, Rebecca is able to prepare it just the way Daddy likes it. So Jacob, posing as his brother Esau, brings the food to Isaac. And this is, this is just masterful storytelling. You know, the suspense really kills us at certain points. It, it seems like Isaac is not going to be deceived. He recognizes his voice to be the voice of Jacob, and he's suspicious because of how quickly... Uh, all of this came together. 
It do, he was doing the math in his head and it didn't feel like enough time to go out and shoot the animal and then um, butcher the animal and then make this food. But Jacob had an explanation for that as well. Look at verse 20. He was able to do this so quickly because the Lord your God granted me success. Of all of the deceptions in this chapter, I, can, I hope you can see that that one is the absolute worst. That's not just lying. That's blasphemy. Talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. Here, Jacob is making the Lord party to his deception, and that is utterly disgusting. That's disgusting. But I wonder, do you, do you ever do this? In your faithlessness, do you ever try to work out your plan for how you can make things happen in the flesh? You know, solve your, all of your problems with your schemes. And then you tell yourself or you, or you tell other people that the Lord is, is, the Lord is leading me to leave this church, some church, for another church, for some ridiculous reason. Or that it was God's providence that brought you this person to you, this person that you have absolutely no business being with, biblically speaking, that, that it's God's will that you marry him or divorce her, or that you take that job which is going to require you to compromise in a multitude of ways. Listen, leave God out of your deception. It's blasphemy. Here's a good rule of thumb, whether you're doing a jigsaw puzzle or you're putting IKEA furniture together. I've learned this over the years. If you have to jam the pieces together, if you have to get out like your saw and whittle stuff down, it's a, it's a, something's not quite right. Maybe you should look at the directions again. You shouldn't have to force things. And the same is true when it comes to the Christian life. If you... If you have to lie and deceive and cajole and manipulate, if you find yourself doing this with frequency in your Christian life, then something has gone terribly wrong. That's not, that, it, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't ask you to do those things. This is not the conduct of faith. It's the conduct of faithlessness. And it's strong evidence that the flesh is at work and not the spirit. Okay, so we've seen dimness. We've seen deception. Let's look third and uh, finally under this heading. Another faithless conduct is disunity. Disunity. Talk about a dysfunctional family. They're all deceiving one another. They're not communicating with one another. They're dividing along lines of favoritism. And it starts at the top. It starts with the marriage. It's very clear, isn't it, that the love that Isaac and Rebecca had for one another at the beginning had evaporated by this stage of the game, such that they're not even talking to one another. And, and worse, it's, it's not just like a silent... Um, stalemate, it's they're actively scheming against one another. Obviously the brothers are divided too. 
And if their rivalry was bad before this incident, it's going to get way worse afterwards. Someone has observed that in no scene of this story are the four of these family members together all in one place. And I think that that is significant. That's another sign that something has gone horribly wrong. If all of your relationships are devolving into disunity, if, if you're living in a swamp of disorder and every vile practice, if there's selfish ambition and jealousy, well then you can be sure that you are trading in a, a lifestyle, a thinking, conduct that is not from above, but rather is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And it results in a harvest of righteousness by those who sow in peace. That's James 3, a passage that I know that you're familiar with, but it, it plays out, plays out. You, you can know something by its fruit. And when the fruit is all disorder and disunity, then you know that there's something really gone wrong at the roots. The whole thing is a disaster. There's dimness, there's deceit, there's disunity, there's so much disorder. It's all the fruit of faithlessness. And this is what you get when you begin to walk by sight and not by faith. This is what you get when you start believing that the Lord is bungling all of his promises to you and that somehow he needs you to swoop in and help him bring all of his promises to pass. This is, this is bad news. And maybe you're wondering, is there any good news? And I'm happy to say that there is. This brings us to our second point, the consolation in faithlessness. Is there any kind of consolation? This whole scenario is shot through with sin. There's sin at every point from every person involved. What is the end result? Well, I think Isaac sums it up best at the end of verse 33. When speaking of Jacob, he says, Yes, and he shall be blessed. If you want kind of a summary of this whole chapter, that's, that's the phrase that sums it up. Yes, Jacob is going to be blessed. You see, Isaac had mistakenly pronounced the blessing on Jacob. He didn't intend to. In verses 27 to 29, we, we hear the substance of that blessing, which it involved property. You know, it spoke of a blessed field. Uh, it involved possessions. Uh, the fatness of the earth, dew, plenty of grain and wine. It involved Jacob's rulership, not just over the nations, but even over his own family. And it involved others being blessed or cursed, depending on their relationship to him, the blessed one. And, and perhaps that last part, you know, curse, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you, that rings a bell, doesn't it? And that last part helps us to understand that what Isaac was imparting was the blessing of God. 
This is the same language that God had used when he spoke his promises to Abraham and Isaac. And now we see that these same promises are coming to Jacob. This is God being faithful to further his promises and to fulfill his promises. And that, friends, was never in doubt. It was never in doubt. God was always going to do what he said he was going to do. But the astounding thing here is that God is accomplishing his purposes, not just in spite of human wickedness, not just in spite of sinful efforts to thwart his plan, but amazingly, mysteriously, God accomplishes his purposes through man's willful sin. I'm not here to tell you why he does that or how he does that, but I am here to tell you that he does that. On second thought, I I suppose I could take a stab for why he does that. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to show forth the awesome sovereignty of our great God. We'll get to see lots more examples of this kind of thing as we work our way through the rest of Genesis. And the most notable one comes at the very end of the book in the case of Joseph. And you know that story well enough to know that the whole story is full of sin, sin, sin. But actually the whole story is about sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. So Joseph can say to his brothers at the end, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God was accomplishing all of his purposes for Joseph and for Israel through the evil of his brothers. But for the very best example of this, we have to fast forward all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to go make a beeline for the one who, by the way, is the one in whom all of these promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to find their ultimate fulfillment. All of these promises are fulfilled in Christ. So we fast forward to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the sinless Son of God, was crucified on a Roman cross. This is the most sinful series of acts ever committed in human history. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, the Roman rulers, the Roman soldiers, they make Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob look like Ward and June, Wally and Beeve. But this heinous act was simultaneously the greatest event in human history. It was the only way for sinners like us to be reconciled to a holy God. Because on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And, and my sin and your sin was on him laid. And he bore it and he dealt decisively with it. Both things are true. Both things are true. It was, it was wicked, horrendously so, but it was glorious. It was the will of God. This Jesus, Peter could say in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. So sin, 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 but also sovereignty, 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 resulting in salvation, salvation, salvation. What is the consolation of faithlessness? Only this, that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. As Job confessed to the Lord, he said, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Not even sin can jeopardize the promises of God. Not your sin, not my sin, not the world's sin, not the devil's sins. The Lord is going to accomplish his purposes and no plan of his will ever be thwarted. Not even his plan to sanctify you and to one day glorify you, to present you before the Lord Jesus Christ as a pure, spotless bride. I hope that's consolation for you. I hope that's encouragement for you. And if that's not enough, here's some more consolation. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, this hall of faith that we keep returning to, to reorient ourselves, to get some commentary on this portion of Genesis. That verse says this, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith? Author of the Hebrews, are you crazy? Are, are, we, are we reading the same story here? What, what's going on? Is the author to the Hebrews just another example of the kind of misremembering you do in, in middle age when you're feeling nostalgic about the things from the past? You actually forget how bad they, they actually were? No. The misremembering is on God's part. This is a God who, in Christ, forgives all of our iniquities and remembers our sins no more. This is a God who in Christ declares us to be righteous and imputes the perfect record of his Son. The perfectly righteous record of Christ is imputed to our accounts so that when he opens the book and he he looks Theobald, 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 he looks across and says, yes, faithful, faithful. Here's your consolation in the midst of faithlessness. The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of a loving Heavenly Father whose who's plan to save you and to sanctify you and to glorify you can never be thwarted. And all of this to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's just look thirdly and finally, briefly, at the consequences for faithlessness. What shall we say to these things? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Since, since nothing can thwart the plan of God, not even my sin, does that mean that I can just sin without consequence? That's not a lesson you should learn from this text. In fact, the story shows us the opposite. There are massive consequences to faithlessness. 
sin never pays. You can see the fallout in, in a number of places. First of all, uh, I mean, I'll just point out a couple of them. You, you can see so much more. First of all, when the deceit is found out, Isaac trembles violently with rage and with regret. Esau, too, is outri- outraged. He, he cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He's wailing, pleading, desperately that there would be some sort of blessing left for him, and there's not. I mean, Jacob does manage to kind of squeeze out some words for Esau, but it's not really a blessing. In fact, it was an anti-blessing. If, if you'll notice, every element of Esau's blessing is the opposite to Jacob's, which is to say that he basically receives a curse fallout. And so we read in verse 41 that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And so he made plans to kill him. And I wonder if that gives you any flashbacks to Genesis chapter 4, where we saw that jealousy over being approved leads one brother to kill the other. I think the narrator has us hearkening back to to that episode, that Cain and Abel incident, on purpose, so that we could see the deadly fallout that comes from our sin, just as Genesis 4 comes hot on the heels of the disobedience of Genesis 3. Sin brings separation between brothers, between one brother and his father, between the other brother and his mother, separation everywhere. And speaking of the mother, she's got another scheme once she hears about Esau's plan. This time it's a scheme to deal with the fallout of her first scheme. She's not learning. So she sends Jacob, her beloved son, far away to her brother Laban to escape the wrath of, of Esau, his brother. But as we're going to see, Lord willing, The 20 years that he spends with Laban is no picnic, and I'm putting that as mildly as I I know how to. Besides, there's no indication that Jacob and his mother ever see each other again. As for Rebecca, after these sinful, faithless contributions, she is never heard from again in Scripture. She just falls off the scene. And all of this to show us that sin has devastating consequences. But much more devastating than the separation on the human plane is the separation from God. This is the ultimate consequence of sin. This is the destiny for all those who persist in sin. Actually, Esau stands as a really good example He stands as a warning of what happens to such people. Already we've seen him indifferent to the things of the Lord. He despises his birthright. He carelessly marries godless Hittite women. But this latest event is also a strong warning. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, we read this strong exhortation says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He wailed and he grieved and he cried, but there was no blessing. There was no opportunity. You see, there's, there's a kind of faithlessness that believers you know, slip into, and by God's grace they are drawn out of, but then there's another kind of faithlessness. There's a willful and persistent kind of faithlessness that plays fast and loose with sins and spurns the grace of God, believes that it's, the grace of God is something that can be called upon at the last moment when we really need it. Friends, be careful lest you, like Esau, find that the door suddenly slams shut and the opportunity to repent is gone forever. There's no amount of weeping, there's no amount of gnashing of teeth that will ever reverse things. And the point is, friends, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, repent of your sin, your faithlessness, your dimness, your deceit, your disunity, your dysfunction, all of it. And put all of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Savior that lived for you, that died for you, that was raised for your justification. And if you, if you know... Right now, if you sense the Lord is, is prompting you by His Spirit and, and you understand that you need to do business with the Lord before it is too late, if, if you're in that condition, I, I would just strongly encourage you not to do anything else until you deal um, before the Lord in Christ. And, and I want you to just know that there's going to be people at, on this front pew right after the service that would, would love to point you to Christ. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to show you the Savior. There is grace and there is mercy found in the blood of Christ. Call on Him today. We give thanks for such a great God, a sovereign God. No plan of His can ever be thwarted. And we thank Him for His Word and for His Spirit that has um, taught us His Word today.